Norway will be a floating wind superpower. But how does that really work? Well, floating wind refers to wind turbines that are mounted on floating structures rather than fixed to the seabed, allowing them to be deployed in deep water locations where traditional bottom fixed turbines are not feasible. This technology enables harnessing wind energy in deep offshore areas, significantly expanding the potential for offshore wind power generation overall. For this episode and diving deep into floating wind, I sat down with Sunne Nibö from Sintif Ocean and the Department of Marine Technology here at NTNU to talk about just that, floating offshore wind. We touched upon different types of floating structures, mooring systems, and the future of floating offshore wind in Norway overall. I'm your host, Julius Wesche, and this is the episode 63 of the NTNU Energy Transition Podcast. Let's go. I mean, it's still an area of research, but it seems to me like the impact in nature is smaller on sea than on land. Mm -hmm. But of course, we still need like research and need to figure out like the impact on birds and the animals in the sea and all these kind of things. But yeah. Today, it's about floating wind, and I'm here with Sinne Nübe from Sintif Ocean, and she has a master's degree from Antenu in marine technology from 2017, and then she went to Norconsult as a consultant, and then she went to Sintif Ocean, and now she does a PhD at Antenu. Sinne, welcome to the podcast, and what made you change leaving consultancy and going to research? Well, uh, first of all, I, like, I did my master's thesis about uh, floating wind, so I think it's a very interesting topic. And the ability to be able to work with like the guys doing research on the topic and they have the ocean basin uh, and work with a group that's really interesting, interested in the topic, I think was like an opportunity I had to take, even though it was also very nice to work at Norconsult as well. What did you do in Norconsult? Also wind? Well, I did a lot of different things in Norconsult mainly. It was, um, they kind of started up with the marine group when I started there. Uh, so it was everything from floating wind, floating bridges, uh, aquaculture. But also I was uh, like uh, going in the mountains looking for old mines to check if they were secured for entrance. The entrance was secured and like uh, surveys of quays and a lot of different things, really. Interesting, yeah. yeah. So, so normally when you would think about marine technology, and especially in Norway, it would be a lot of oil, it would be a lot of gas. Um, at least that's my naive way of thinking about it. But when you started your, your master's, um, was there anything you envisioned to work with? Was it always clear that you wanted to work with renewable energies? Or was it just that everything related to oceans is something that is interesting to you for particular reasons? Because I know that you come from a family from oil and gas, isn't it? Well, when I started, it was kind of random. Like I know I knew that I wanted to be an engineer, but it was kind of like I was in the Roskilde Festival and then they had a campaign calling all the girls, trying to get them to kind of put marine technology a bit higher up on the wish list. And then it was like, it sounded cool. They had like wave basin and th things. I was like, okay, why not? <laughs> but Roskilde, that's Denmark, is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. It, but isn't that like a rock festival or something? Uh, it's a lot of different music. It's a, it's a, okay, it's a, yeah. but it's still a music festival. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now now then you started at Sintef uh, Ocean. 
But that happened, I think, two years ago or something, isn't it? And 2020. And so, yeah, so you were working at Centive Ocean, and then now you started a PhD at Antino. Why? Like, that's really cool, but like, what, what was the, the trigger there? Well, there was also kind of a process. Uh, when I just started in Centive, they told me like, oh, if you want, you can take a PhD. But I was like, I don't know if I want to take a PhD. Because I mean, like working with a group of people and working with like so interesting tasks in Sensitive Ocean is really fun, I think. And but then you have like the team experience and you can kind of lean on the other people and you mm. cooperate to get the results. But I was kind of afraid that doing a PhD would be really hard, and I think it might be as well. But then it kind of matured. Uh, working there for a couple of years, my boss asked me, like, are you 100% sure you don't want to take a PhD? Because it's because it's into a lot of people have PhDs, isn't it? You don't require one, but it's... Well, it depends from group to group. Some groups, almost everyone. My group is kind of divided. Someone has a PhD and someone doesn't. And it's not like the one thing is better than the other. But also they had funding in a project to have a PhD and they thought that I would be a good candidate. So they asked me and I had to do a lot of thinking. But then like, I think being a scientist is, is very fun, but also like this with uh, writing articles is kind of new for me. And I'm good at working in projects, I'm good at writing uh, like reports, but th this like doing your own research and doing articles, you can learn that through working at Sintef. But when you do a PhD, you get like a lot of time to actually dig into that topic and really learn it. Yeah. without thinking on the hours that much. <laughs> yeah. And today it's it's about floating wind and um, for floating wind there's different structures and there's different mooring systems. But what is that particular project that you're working with? What is it what you are working with? What is it what you're doing research on? Yeah. Well, my thesis is called uh, Design of Floating Wind Farms with Shared Mooring Systems. So it's kind of a wide topic. Um, so I don't know how much in detail I would start going. No, no. You, no, but just to show that that's really, that's your area of expertise and that's what you've been spending quite some time with in the last months and years, isn't it? Yeah, like in like. the ocean, I will be working both with bottom fixed and uh, floating wind turbines and they are both with like individual mooring systems and also shared. So I've been working with offshore wind, but this really going into the details for shared mooring is a bit new and something I've been doing also a bit. Yeah. yeah. Right, then maybe let's 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 jump into it. Um, how about, Sunna, you, you paint us the big picture, like, okay, we all know we have we need the energy transition, we need to decarbonize, and we know that wind onshore and offshore is very likely or is part of the solution. Where are we right now and why do we need offshore wind? Well, uh, well, let's say just offshore wind. You know, <laughs> like yeah. we don't have to talk about the whole energy transition, but like, yeah. what, what's the role of offshore wind? Well, yeah. we know that, like, uh, for example, for Norway, we have like a very long coastal line. So, uh, of course, then it's uh, then we have the areas for building out offshore wind, and that's also, I mean, that's the case for many countries that you have available space in the ocean, and also like if you look at wind on land, then you you kind of you have a limitation in size. And also you need to build up the roads to kind of get the parts of the turbine up there. And you need to kind of get everything there by cars. In this ocean, you can use boats uh, and you don't need to build roads. You need to put, like build it there, but you kind of, you, you don't need to do all the stuff with work with uh, roads and also to transport it with cars. So then you can be bigger. And we've seen like a large of scaling, like 
if you build one unit that's quite large, then you can get a lot of energy and you can build fewer units than if they're smaller. And that's easier to do and see. And we also, I mean, it's still an area of research, but it seems to me like the impact in nature is smaller uh, on sea than on land. Mm -hmm. But of course, we still need like research and need to figure out like the impact on birds and the animals in the sea and all these kind of things. But yeah. Mm. Yeah, and you also say that um, like one of the ideas, oh, like floating wind needs to be connected to the uh, to the seabed, isn't it? And um, one of the advantages that we'll talk later about, about different types of mooring systems is that some of them have less of an impact on the seabed than, than others. Is that correct? Yeah, like when you have flo floating wind, then you have like you have anchor lines and you have anchors, but you can also remove those one quite easily. So like they're there. But you can also remove them, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll we'll dive into yeah. that, that, that in a second. Give me give give me maybe an idea of where we are when like I think one topic sorry that um, that also plays into there is that when we think about onshore wind that there's a lot of maybe legitimacy and, and acceptance challenges maybe and that's maybe not so much the case with with offshore wind. Is well, that, we still have like areas of conflict uh, on the sea, like um, you have uh, the fishing industry. Uh, there uh, and of course we have we have like the animals we have the animals living in the sea uh, so you still you still have also like um, vessels going around and everything needs to kind of work together so we need to kind of plan where we're having these parks and how do they interact with the industries and the nature types that's already there but also I also forgot to say that the wind is stronger and more um, offshore than onshore and that will also give us more energy as well okay and then give me an idea i learned preparing for this episode that there and tell me if i'm wrong that there is so f that there's a couple of wind offshore wind farms and most of them are floating and some of them are being connected to the mainland and some of them to other countries not just norway but and some of them are being used to electrify Oil and gas rigs, is that correct? Like, where, where are we right now? How many do we have in Norway, in the Norwegian Sea, and what are they doing? What are they supplying? Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, we have most bottom-fixed uh, mm -hmm. wind parks in, Nor no, no, not in Norway, in, in the world. Um, but uh, today we have the lar world's largest floating wind park is in Norway. It's um, High Wind Tampen. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite far south in North Sea. And there we have 88 megawatt installed uh, capacity with uh, 11 uh, floating wind turbines, which is the Hyvin uh, design. That's uh, quite like, yeah, you can compare it to a box of soda, <laughs> kind of. The substructure, it, it looks kind of like a large box of soda. But what do you mean a box of soda? Where you put where you put bottles in? Do you mean like a plastic box? Yeah, like, uh, like you drink a soda can. Yeah. It's like it's it's floating, but it's like if you put a half a box of soda in the ocean, you will see it's floating. I, uh, and that's kind of you uh, could compare uh, the hyphen design to a box of soda. Okay, no, it's, okay. it's not completely correct. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But, but 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 for the picture, I, I think yeah. that, that that makes complete sense. Um, so when we think about floating offshore uh, offshore wind, and you just said that that's a we have was it eight? Was it eleven? What do you say? Yes, and people are talking about 15 or uh, 20 megawatts turbines already today. So they're expected to be quite much larger in the near future. Yeah, okay. And then preparing for this episode, I also learned that there's different types of 
how do you call them? Substructures? Yeah, um, substructures. Substructures. So obviously, <laughs> not all of them are Red Bull cans, as you just said. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, how are maybe, how's the context for each wind f offshore wind farm different so that you need to have different types of substructures? Can you give us a little bit of an idea, a yeah. little bit of an overview? Yeah, sure. Like this uh, high wind tampon, that's a quite efficient design. But then you need quite large water depths, which we have in Norway. Uh, so that, then that's, it seems to be quite like economically uh, beneficial to build those ones quite efficient. Um, but then when you have more shallow water, uh, the parts in the water cannot be too deep. So then you need to have another type of structure. You need more flat ones that are more broad? Yeah, the, yeah, because you need a sub, like, because these wind turbines are really high and they're really heavy. So you need to kind of have something that makes it stable. And when you can't have it really deep, then it needs to be like a uh, like more shallow but wider. You can have like a barge structures. That's more like a ship hole form, some kind of not like the same, but that kind of like one hole. Or you can have like semi-submersible. That looks like many of the, for example, oil and gas platforms we have today with like some pontoons and columns, and that gives you like a smaller area in the water plane. Because a lot of the wave force is hitting the structure in the water plane area. So having like a smaller uh, water plane area could be beneficial. Yeah. Mm. You just mentioned that you, you just mentioned waves. Well, can you give us an idea of um, like, how is it out there? I know all of them, all of, we all know there's wind and there's waves and that's why we are out there. But how, uh, like, what do these structures have to withstand? Well, it, a lot depends on where you are because mm. they're really <laughs> they're really large differences. I mean, the North Sea is quite harsh. There you have, I mean, it depends very much like where you are in the North Sea. But I mean, you have extreme waves. That's I, I guess they would be over thirty meters. Um, but in like winter storms. Yes, but that's I think quite far out as well. But you said and you said that it's kind of like understood it's kind of nice that these to have these floating wind farms in areas where it is quite deep, so they can potentially be quite out out in the sea. Is that correct? Yeah, it also depends. Like, uh, uh, for example, Hyman Tempin is delivering uh, energy to to oil and gas industry, and they are offshore. And then you don't need to build long cables to get them to shore because everything is kind of you need to kind of like how uh, if you have them far from shore and you want the energy to land then you need to build really long cables uh, but if you have want to deliver the energy offshore then i mean then you can just deliver the energy offshore and you don't need to build a cable to land so everything is you kind of need to decide what you want and where are i mean someone is deciding where we can put the sites and that depends on a lot of different components I mean, we also want to kind of shelter a lot of the, the seas for uh, not building out anything as well. And also, like, we don't want to put them where there are, like, a lot of birds flying by every year and important, like, fishing areas or uh, where there are, like, uh, environments that we really need to protect. So there's <laughs> a lot of different things that's kind of deciding where we're putting these parks, mm. not only how close it is, but mm. also that's also a part of it. So soon you just threw in someone decides that who who's who's deciding that? Well, <laughs> if you have an well, idea, I, think I guess it's, it's policymakers in the shooting um, or I, I think also I might be wrong, but I think NVE also is a part of the Norway. 
Norwegian Water Resources and Energy Directorate. That's uh, that's not the ministry, but it's like the the executive agency that works for the ministry. If I'm not mistaken, is that correct? I think so. <laughs> I'm not so into these things. I'm, <laughs> sorry. I'm an engineer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I kind of try to see a bit of the whole picture. But it's a lot of things to remember no, as well. For sure. so. <laughs> no, for sure. No, for sure. But but one more time about that, that, that depth. 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 Water that, depth. That water depth, yes. Yeah. Um, you said um, that obviously when it is not so deep, we can, um, we don't need floating wind, but we can have structures that are mounted in the ground, if that's the right way of saying it. Yeah, bottom fixed structures. Bottom fixed, yeah. And, um, and then where does it... Where does it start to, or where, where, from where does it make sense to have floating um, wind farms? Well, today, How many meters? Just an idea, you know? Yeah. Well, today they're saying that you can make bottom fixed structures up to 60 meters water depth. They're also pushing that, that limit, but that's kind of like the normal limit. However, when it's very shallow, like 60 meter, it's quite complicated to make a good mooring system to keep the flo floating structure in place. But from like, I don't know, 80 to 100 meters, then you can start with um, floating and you can, of course, make it more shallow, but then it gets more complicated and probably also a more expensive mooring system. Mm. You just used this word mooring. So and you said, okay, anything between 60 and 80, then it makes starts to make sense to use mooring systems. Um, what is Like, like we just use this word just very normally, but w what is mooring? And um, let's maybe dive in, into mooring because it is actually like how, how the way how a floating wind farm uh, or wind turbine is connected to the ground. Is that correct? Yeah, it's how you keep the floating structure in place. And that's what we've been doing with like, you do it with um, like uh, vessels that needs to stay at one place. You can have these long lines connected to anchors like sailboat, for example. Uh, and you also have it for oil and gas platforms. And we also need it to keep the floating wind structure not floating away. So then you have a number of lines that are connected by anchors to the seabed. And that's and then you also have different components, but that's like the basic. Mm. And these mooring systems, they don't you don't you need them really just to connect the floating wind wind turbines. It's not that Like these structures of the floating wind turbines, they float by themselves, isn't it? It's not that we need the mooring systems to kind of put pressure from below that they stay upright or whatever. You have one type of structures that's called a tension-like platform. It has like more buoyancy, the, like... The uh, floating up? Or yeah, floating up, yeah, <laughs> yeah, then going down. Mm. So if you kind of have a tension-like platform, that one, and then you lose the mooring lines, it might capsize. Uh, turn around. Turn around. Uh, sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, it's like just try yeah, to yeah, use easy, easy, easy vocabulary. Yeah. But for the other ones, is that normal stuff? Is, this, is that something where you feel a lot of colleagues are working on, or is that because it sounds like a big risk? And if you have big wind farm, wind farms with I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40 wind turbines, and one of them capsizes and then just like floats around and crash, it could crash against something else. So is yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, dangerous. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but then you like you. In design regulations, you have these safety factors that are supposed uh, to make that not happen. Mm. And then it's like a balance uh, between like, what are the costs of this happening and what are the consequences? And because like uh, wind f uh, floating wind farms uh, or floating wind turbines, they're usually they're unmanned structures. There are only people there when the weather is quite good and then the likelihood for something happen is quite low. Uh, so then, like, if one of them capsizes, 
uh, it would be like the consequences are less than, for example, in a boat where you have a lot of people working all day. Um, so material impact could be large, but but human, human casualties impact. is unlikely. Yeah, and also like depending on like how damaged it will be, maybe you can just put it up or tow it to shore and fix it. Mm. I mean, it depends a lot of. I mean, if you meet, lose some mooring lines, you need to fix the mooring lines. But maybe if you just lose one, maybe you can just fix it and it mm. will be okay. Um, this is all a part of the design of the mooring system. And depending on the mooring system, you will have different kind of consequences. Uh, but yeah, you don't want it to to turn around. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable yeah. somehow. Um, yeah. yeah. Does does. Does the regulation that we have right now, do they say anything about what type of mooring system you should use? Like, is that like the ones that we just talked about? I've, how did you call them? Tension-like platforms. These ones, are they allowed, for example, in Norwegian waters? Yes. Yes, they are. Um, but uh, they're not like the one you need to really, you have need to have a lot of tension in these lines. So from my perspective, they're not the most common ones. Or, I, I mean, they're not... You don't have floating wind with tension like platform that I know of. Mm. And like before, what we use a lot is what is called catenary mooring. That means chain mooring. You have this large chain chain that's... Then uh, 200 meters down or even more. Yeah, or mm. you can have a combination of synthetic lines and chain. The problem with chain is that you will have like this fatigue damage. It means that it will have more wear over time. And then you have... Uh, it might be you need might need to uh, change part of it during the lifetime of the wind turbine. How long is the lifetime of a wind turbine these days? You design it for twenty five years. That's the normal and, standard. And when you have chains that are exposed to wear and tear, how? What do you think? How often? Like, would you have to, tra to change them once, but which is probably expensive, or even twice? Well, I, I'm I don't know the numbers, and also. When the wind turbines increase in size, the loading increases. So it needs larger chain, and then you might have even larger fatigue damage. So it seems like people are moving more towards synthetic uh, fiber lines and trying to avoid to have uh, at least not much chain, but maybe not, no changes all, at all. It kind of depends on the design. Mm. Um, but then you need to have like clump weights and buoys because when you design a mooring system, you would like it to have like the right properties. So you kind of need to use some time to kind of find a line that gives you kind of the properties you would like. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's let's go into these different types. <laughs> like in a second, we're going to talk about different mooring systems and there's like yeah. direct shared and indirect shared. And uh, mm, let's talk about that. But bef before that, you mentioned these different types of... of uh, Substructures. Of substructures. And you, you mentioned the barge one, which is kind of like a boat, if yeah, I understand. Yeah. Then there is the semi-submersible, that's like a oil and gas platform, for example. Yeah. Most of my, and then there is two that you sent me before, but we didn't talk about them yet. And that is the spar, which is kind of the, the, the Red Bull. Yeah. Um, the soda can. Uh, the soda can, if you will. <laughs> yeah. um, and then there is one which is called a tensioned legs platform TLP. Yeah, that was the one we talked about with the um, too much buoyancy. Oh, th that you. Ha oh, yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah, that's the. Yeah, okay, I understand. Yeah. On this picture here, um, the, the mooring lines, they're really straight up. So yeah. they're kind of the whole thing is connected to the ground and it. It's uh, it yeah. <laughs> 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 nice, nice. So, so because my question was now, does it. Do, do all these type of structures. 
do they have different requirements when it comes to mooring? And you just mentioned that that that's the case. So the one that the TLP ones, the tension legs platform, there's a different requirement than for the other three, the barge, the sub, semi-submersible and the spar one, isn't it? Yes, those three others can have more, like all of them can have like Kettner mooring, taut mooring, s- different type of synthetic mooring or combination. What were these two words that you just used? Catenary, Ket- uh, that's the chain mooring. Um, a taut mooring is that like it's a uh, some kind of line uh, mooring line that's quite uh, tensioned, uh, and the semi-taut is like a combination of chain and and taut. for these fibers. Yes, mm-hmm. and then you have also different kind of synthetic uh, mooring lines uh, and different setups. They can be taut. They can have uh, clump weights and buoyancy elements to have to give you kind of the properties you would like because you want to keep it in place but you also want to have like the response to the way when the wind to be uh, good just to say it's like yeah. Yeah. general yeah yeah but yeah. <laughs> but what could that for example be so so what i understand is that back in the day when or it's not really back in the day but the first designs were like okay we have one floating wind turbine and then we have normally like three um uh, was that uh we have three how do you call them what do you call them shared we have three lines per per wind turbine for example or four maybe or even four okay or even more even more okay (laughs) because okay Um, but now that is expensive because then you need three or four lines per wind turbine and then you say you have not just 11 but you eventually have 40 or 60 or whatever and then this idea comes in to have these shared more lines is that correct yes is that the, the thought the train of thought yeah so why people are talking about shared mooring system is as you say to re- to reduce the number of mooring lines and anchors uh, for example, Hyvin Tampen, the wind park we have in Norway, they have already shared anchors. That means that the two or three turbines have lines going down to the same anchor, and then you need fewer anchors in the wind park. So you have kind of the same amount of lines, but you have fewer anchors yes. because it's not four lines for anchors, but it's four lines, one anchor. These anchors yes. are potentially bigger, I guess, but... It yeah, they need to take more load, but they're fewer. Um, and then we also have, that's not built yet, but people are thinking about uh, also sharing the mooring lines. And then you can reduce the number of lines and the number of anchors. And that's, then you can both, I mean, the lines needs to be stronger, the anchors need to be bigger, but maybe you can reduce both like the resources in, in making these lines and these anchors. And when we have several uh, no, fewer, sorry, points on the seabed that might also reduce the impact on the seabed. Uh, and then, I mean, this is kind of new, so people are still working with how do we do installation? How do we do maintenance when these are connected together? And also, the structures gets more complicated because they are affecting each other. Before, you only looked at, like, when you one, have one at mm. a time, even though you have, you also have some impacts of on the wind pattern, for example, because of the presence of several wind turbines. Uh, you mean like if one is up, like if one is more towards the wind, I don't know, then it has an impact because the ones behind it don't get that much wind or that much waves, maybe something like that? F- yeah, at, at least for the wind, mm. uh, having 
if you have two turbines after each other, the first one will have like a free wind field, so all the winds come into that one. The second one, it will both have a reduced amount of wind because of the presence of the first one, but also it kind of also changes how it, you get like a snake behavior of the wind behind the first one as well, who affects the loads, wind loads on the second turbine. Mm. And is that the same underwater? Or are they so far away from, like how far are offshore wind, floating wind turbines away from each other? That's not 30 meters, that's more like 200, is it? Uh, it's much more than 200. Even more than that. <laughs> I think like generally people are saying that you will should have like between seven to 10 diameters spacing between them. And these large ones, they have like a diameter of 200 meters. And then you multiply that by eight or 10, and then you get like, to have okay. rough estimates of the distance. So that would be 1.5 kilometers or something, yes. even around about there? Yeah, okay. so it's, it's, it's far away. And actually, I, I like, it's also a question, like, are the wind, like the wave climate different for the different turbines? It's not so much published. For that area in like offshore conditions, you have research on that for like coastal areas and for example, for floating bridges, uh, but as far as I could find, it's not so much research specifically for floating wind. Uh, I, I, like, I don't think it will have like a direct impact from the one floater to the second one on the wave. But because it's so large distances mm. and you can have like changes in the water depth, you can have maybe one is more sheltered. So maybe the wave load can be a bit different. Mm. And when they are connected, that might also affect how they are responding. Yeah. So, so tell me about like, what is it, what you, like you work on mooring systems for floating offshore, but like, how does that work really look like? And what is, what is the particular research question that you try to answer in your PhD project? Um, well, what, one of the main topics is that when we are connecting these wind turbines, like let's just say two, because that's simpler. So these two wind turbines have one line in connecting them to each other, or they are not connected. And then I will try to figure out, can I say something generally about the behavior of these two different options? And how does that align with the design rules we have today for the mooring system? Is the rules we have today with the safety factors, are they okay or should they be modified? Mm. Yeah. And also looking a bit into how, like, how we're analyzing this numerically as well. So that's kind of methodological development as well. And you're mostly, was that using Python or what are you doing that with? Well. Um, you have a lot of different fidelity, like uh, levels of occurrency in analysis methods. What I will start is doing it really simple. And then I will start using MATLAB. I should probably use Python, but <laughs> I'm a MATLAB person. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we have, um, we have some tools to do analysis in frequency domain. Um, frequency domain is kind of you have a kind of a linearized system and you put in like a unit load and you see how the system responds kind of for different frequencies. And that would be the mooring system, the a default mooring system or what would be the system that you look at? Well, then I would look at um, different kind of, uh, then I would try to model like the full wind turbine with the tower, the wind turbine and the floater and the mooring system and different mooring system, both with shared and individual mooring and see how how they are behaving uh, compared to each other. And then like the one step up 
in a currency is to kind of use a time domain simulation. Then you can you simulate like a three-hour storm and you see how the system is acting. But then for these shared systems, these models are like getting heavy to analyze. So people are working with it now, looking at like how can we do that like efficiently and accurately enough. So that's quite interesting, I think. Yeah, it sounds quite complex actually that the systems that you're looking at because there's so many factors that that factor in, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's all <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm gonna. I'm like what what I find kind of interesting is that on the one hand we need we need floating and we kind of know that we want and we need floating for a couple of years now, so like five, ten, maybe even twenty years, like really looking ahead. But still, right now there is. You just said there's not a lot of research, for example, on how floating floats impact other ones later. So so it's just interesting to see how long time it does take f for such research to happen and then probably takes substantial time to actually have real projects in which yeah. we'll have a lot of like shared mooring systems. Yeah, but I don't like this with the waves it's it might not affect anything at all. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean I mean I think I don't think this is the first question we need to get an answer to, but it would be interesting to see if it has any impact. Yeah. Because probably like the largest impact is the wave itself. And that we kind of, that we know. Um, yeah. And that there is more research about that. That's kind of clear now. You can simulate, yeah, you said you would simulate a three hour storm. Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, we can do that. I mean, but that's like the same methodology for any floating structures. The main difference is now like we also have, we have the wind there and we have the ocean waves and we have the current. Like for example, for a vessel, you don't you don't want to maximize the wind force, but we do that for floating wind. So then, <laughs> the wind starts to to make uh, like a larger impact uh, on the structure because we want the power from the wind. We wind want wind loads there. Mm. Um, so I think like we have quite good numerical tools for single merge structures. I mean, there's always improvement, and people are doing like more advanced simulation. Um, and we also were doing like at Sintef Ocean and Antenu, they're doing like model tests in the uh, ocean basin. That's very exciting, I think. That's a T-hold? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a T-hold, yeah. yeah. And here in Trondheim, that yeah. T-hold is a part of a city. Yeah. yeah. And this is where you work as well, is it? Yes, yeah. or we're temporarily moved because they're building us a new ocean basin. So yeah. <laughs> is, that <laughs> the, nice. is that the, the ocean space center, yeah? Yes. The first time I heard that word, I was like, hey, ocean in the space? That makes no sense. But it yeah. is actually... They've <laughs> changed the name now to Norskhav Technology Center. Norwegian think. Ocean Technology Center? I don't know. I really don't know the English <laughs> word. I should know. <laughs> no, no worries. But yeah. <laughs> you will find it. There was a lot of press yeah. about it. And it was it's pretty expensive, they say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but will that increase the quality or like will that in give you opportunities to do research that you would have not been able to do otherwise? Well, or I colleagues think, of yours? Yeah, like for my PhD, it's uh, like they're building now. So for my PhD, it's it would. Too late, and huh? also, I, I don't do experiments, I do mm. like uh, computer mm. uh, analysis. Um, but Norway, we have kind of been like in lead or one of the countries, I would say, in lead for marine technology and science. And I think like the buildings and the equipment, I think it would be very beneficial to have them upgraded. So, yeah. yeah. Sounds good. All right, dear Sune, this was Sune Nibu, uh, PhD student at Antenu and a re research scientist at Center of Ocean. Thanks for joining us today, dear Sune. 
Yeah, thank you for asking me to come. <laughs> yeah, and uh, good luck with your PhD project. When will, will you be done, more or less? I know it's really, that's a bad, sorry. I, okay, we're not stopping yet, but that's a bad question to ask PhD students. But like, what's the, the timeline that you envision? Well, I just started in August. So, I mean, the plan is to finish in August 2026. Okay, well then, good luck with that. Yeah, Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.